Would you turn with me in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 24? It's in your New Testaments, page 1538 in your Pew Bibles. In your bulletin, just before the order of service, is a uh, whole explanation of the, uh, the lectionary and the kind of focus and themes that we're going to use throughout the, the Advent season. That's for your information, for you to read where this all came from. It also lists some of the special services that we're having. And so throughout this Advent season, why not invite others to come and join us uh, for worship as well? You see on there just what it is that we're busy with throughout this, uh, this whole month and this season. We begin with the return of Christ. Would you join me in prayer as we open the word? Father in heaven, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for how the Old and the New Testament fit together and for the freedom that we have to read it and to study it. And thank you, Lord, also as we enter this season of the year, that we may be reminded that it is indeed the season of Advent, a season in which we anticipate the coming again of Jesus Christ. And so as we hear about that and as we talk about that this morning, we pray, Lord, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Open your word to us and allow us to see Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew 24. At first I was going to read the entire chapter, but it's a little long. So keep it open because I'm going to refer to various pieces in it. But let's start at the very beginning to kind of set the stage for what's happening. So chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking the way when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus gives them uh, some of the signs of the times. And then we pick it up in verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, giving up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The reading of God's word. Keep it open to that chapter because we're going to refer to all kinds of different sections throughout it to make one complete story. Brothers and sisters in Christ, over the last few months, 
We have been busy, as you know, with the letters to the seven churches of Asian Minor. Letters written by Jesus, the very one walking among the candle stands. That's why the banner is still hanging here this morning. The very one sitting on the throne, as we noted last Sunday when Pastor John preached on Revelation 4. And throughout that whole series, the picture that we had of Jesus was one of power, glory, majesty, awe, and wonder. So much so that when John stood before him and saw him, he fell on his face as though dead. But we also noted that this was a Lord and a King who was and is intimately connected with his people, with the church. And it was because he was so intimate, intimately connected that he could write such personal letters. So as we draw closer to Christmas, once again, we are reminded of how personal the Lord became. In fact, he became like us in every way. He was Emmanuel, God with us. That's, of course, what we celebrate at Christmas. So what we have, in some sense, is the Jesus of Revelation and the Jesus of Christmas, as it were. And it's important as we celebrate Christmas once again this year that we keep the broader understanding of who Jesus is before us. Jesus should not just be the quaint child in the manger. Nor should he just be the glorious one sitting on the throne because he is both. And it seems to me that our celebration of Christmas will be all the more complete or deeper or fuller or whatever word you want to use if we kind of blend those two images or those two pictures, those two understandings of Christ. Now today, as we enter the Advent season, we enter with many unknowns in life. There's an old saying which goes something like this, nothing is as certain as death and taxes. That's a cute way of saying that in this life there's really only two things of which we can be absolutely sure, and, if, and that is if the government doesn't get you, the grave will. For the rest, we can't be sure about anything. In spite of the horoscopes and the crystal ball gazers, in spite of all the psychics who try to give people a line in the future, everyone basically has the same problem. No one can predict the future. And while we might be able to make all kinds of educated guesses about whether or not there'll be a mild winter or who's gonna win the Grey Cup today, too bad Hamilton's not there, or whether or not the government will be able to complete its promised refugee resettlement, when it really comes down to it, we don't know. There are many things we simply don't know. We never know exactly what's coming. Yet, as Christians, we confess that there is much more that can indeed be known for sure besides death and taxes, since neither of them are not necessarily guaranteed. As Christians, and all Christians agree, by the way, we confess that there is an event yet to happen which will for sure take place. 
In fact, biblically speaking, it's an event you can stake your life on. And the event to take place is the one that involves Jesus Christ, that child of Bethlehem and the one walking among the candle stands. The event to take place as yet is the event of history. It's the climax of history, if you will. It's where all what we experience now and where all that has come before is leading. And that anticipated event is, of course, the return of Jesus Christ. And it's really interesting to me that the Bible doesn't question this event. It's simply declared, like it's simply declared in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, so the Bible simply declares Jesus is coming again. Men of Galilee, said the angels to the disciples on the Mount of Olives just after Jesus ascended into heaven, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1 verse 11. Or as Jesus said, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Verse 30 of the chapter we just read. Behold, I am coming soon, said Jesus in Revelation 22, verse 7, and in Revelation 22:12. 12. So we may say that amidst all the uncertainty of this world and this life, this is sure, even sure as a matter of fact, than death and taxes. Jesus will return. And that's really what Advent is all about. Advent means coming. Jesus is coming. The very one whose birth we celebrate, the very one who walks among the candlestands, is the very one who will come again. And that's exciting for the believer because it means, as verse 31 of chapter 24 says, he will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. In other words, when Jesus comes again, all is going to be made new. And we will dwell with our Lord. He'll gather us and we'll dwell with our Lord on the new earth. This world recreated. This world holy and pure for all eternity. What a day that will be. It ought to make us sit up, take note, and be on the edge of our seats. In anticipation. In the pastor's class this past Wednesday evening as this season of sessions ended, we ended like we usually do in that class with some teaching about the last days and the return of Christ. And I mentioned that in the class that the Reformed churches are often uh, accused or criticized or whatever word you want to use uh, of for, for not preaching very much about the second coming and all the things leading up to it, while other Christians spend considerable time on the second coming and the events leading up to it and so forth. 
And we noted, of course, that there are different ways of reading the scriptures. One of the ways leads to such writing of such books as the popular Left Behind series now made into, into, music, into movies, which have much to say about what is and will be happening. Those are not books that come from the Reformed perspective. Perhaps from a Reformed perspective, we don't write about it or preach about it very much because, well, when it really comes down to it, there's not too much to say other than the simple proclamation that Jesus is indeed coming back. And so while it may be true that among Christians there's a lot of fog and disagreement as to how all of this is going to happen, which is where much of the discussion and much of the debate and the conjecture takes place, there is nothing foggy about the simple, straightforward fact that Jesus will return. And that proclamation ought not to surprise us because we have known about that from the very beginning of time. The fact that Jesus is coming back ought to take no one off guard. Ever since mankind fell into sin, we know that the Lord God has put a plan in place to restore everything to perfection. And all along throughout history, the Lord has given us signs, if you will, to remind us that he's coming again, to remind us that history is moving in one direction, moving forward to the final day, a day of judgment and renewal, a day of cleansing and restoration. And the reminders and the signs are everywhere. Just like at the moment, the signs of Christmas are everywhere present during this Advent season. The Lord has never kept the trajectory of history a secret. It's true, however, the signs of the times are much more ominous than the things that point to Christmas. And as Jesus was talking to his disciples about the temple being destroyed, as it was in A.D. 70, and about the end of history, he lists some of the signs of the times in this chapter. And I suspect that it, in some ways it wasn't intended to be an exhaustive list. Let's look at them just for a few moments. These are signs that we can identify with in some way or another. If you get your Bibles open, look at verse 4 and 5. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Of course, there were many in the New Testament church times that fit this bill. We talked about some of those at the time uh, when we went through the seven letters. And there have been many since. Any number of cult leaders like the Reverend Sun Young Moon or leader of the Moonies or Jim Jones or David Koresh, or that's just naming but a few there have been all kinds of cult leaders and deceivers throughout history. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of war. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And of course, there are many instances of war and rumors of war at the time of the New Testament. The New Testament church knew all about that. And there have been many since. We know some even from our short lifespan. World War I, remember the war to end all wars. Well, so much for that. 
World War II, the Boer War, the Korean War, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Sudan, ISIS, Boko Haram, Russia, Turkey, France, to name but a few of the modern situations. Even Canada was, has, and today is at war. We're often told that at any point in history there are some 40 wars raging in this world. Verse 7, famines and earthquakes in various places. Against there were many famines and earthquakes at the time of the early church. And there have been all down through history. Today we think of places like Tibet and Haiti and Japan and Chile and the United States and so forth as places that have experienced major earthquakes. When I think of famines, I think of places like Sudan or Somalia or some of the more recent examples. Even now, California is suffering a severe drought. Actually, you know, if you were to go to the internet and start to Google lists of wars and droughts and famines and, and all cult leaders and all these kinds of things, you'd find pages of them. The lists are endless, and it's not only now, at this particular time in history, in 2015, but they've been there all down through the centuries all down through world history. As the writer of Ecclesiastes noted, there's nothing new under the sun. The horrendous events experienced by the fallen and sin-filled human race continue without slowing down. Verse 9, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Remember some of that? When we looked at the seven churches of Asia Minor, we noticed that some of them were the victims of persecution. We know that a number of the disciples were and died for the faith. Persecution of Christians has happened and continues to happen around the globe. When you read material produced by the Voice of the Martyrs and other such like material, story after story is told about Christians dying even today simply because they are Christ professors. In fact, we are told that there are more Christians persecuted today for the faith than ever before in history. Verse 10, at that time many will fall from the faith and many false prophets will appear. New age religions have claimed many Christians as of many of the cults. Some of the fastest growing faith groups are the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses False religions are a dime a dozen, so to speak. Then verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Well, it doesn't take much to think about that. ISIS is perhaps a case in point, but even beyond that evil, consider the challenges faced by our aboriginal population and the many missing and murdered First Nations women discarded as if they were just human garbage and inconsequential. Consider the coldness of abortion. Who cares? They're garbage. Consider the whole concept of winning at all costs. No time for losers, you know, from that song and so forth. How cold. Consider some of the fights on Black Friday over stuff. How stupid, how sad, how cold, how sick. 
And then when these kinds of things no longer affect us, but we laugh at them or we simply accept them as normal, that's just the way things are, or we perhaps include them in our entertainment, and I suspect that has some way to speak to the growing cold of love. Ah, oh, the problems of our world abound. So much more could be said, because I haven't said anything yet about verses 15 through 35. You can spend some time on all these passages. That's the period that we're in now. The time of tribulation, of some have called it a time of trial for the church, a time of challenge for the Christian faith, a time of questioning the faith, and a time when it seems like evil has the upper hand and the last, last say. So are we in the last days? Surely the answer must be yes. But note what Jesus says about the signs of the times. If you have your Bibles open, verse 7. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Verse 8. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. Verse, 20, verse 25. See, I have told you ahead of time. So the end is not yet. But there seems to be some warning. And so signs that the end is coming. And then, of course, the next logical question is, okay, so when is he going to come back? When is it actually going to happen? And that's, of course, a question that's been debated literally for centuries. And people have spent all sorts of time trying to figure out the exact date of Jesus' return on the basis of world events or on the basis of all the numbers found in the book of Revelation and Ezekiel and elsewhere. One of the latest attempts, as many of you know, was by Harold Camping, who figured that May 21, 2011 was the judgment day. And they had a whole entourage that drove across the United States warning people that that was the day when it was going to come. A billboard on the next day said, that was awkward. <laughs> then you have the blood moon theory that has been posited. But again, nothing happened. It's impossible to make such calculations. And it's an improper use of the Bible to try to figure out the exact time or the day. For, said Jesus in verse 36 of Matthew 24, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun. Not even they have party to that date or that time. So knock it off. Only the Father knows. And elsewhere, the Bible talks about Jesus coming as unexpectedly as a thief in the night. Which means that Jesus will probably return at a time when we perhaps least expect it. At the same time, we ought to note that Jesus is not going to just going to come sneaking into the world and all of a sudden show up and say, boo, here I am. His second coming is not going to be anything like his first coming. At his incarnation, his first coming, Jesus appeared in the body of humiliation, born under the law in a quiet, unwanted, unnoticed place, born to die. And at his incarnation, it was only the poor shepherds who heralded his coming although the angels were there to give us a little bit of a foretaste of what, perhaps, of what was to come. But remember, at his ascension, the angels came and told his disciples that as they saw him go up into heaven, so he would reappear. 
When Jesus returns, he will come in his glorified body, visible to the naked human eye. And he will be as real then as he is now and as he was when he walked on earth. And when he comes, he will come, says the Belgic Confession, with great glory and majesty. He will come that way, after all, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he'll come with his royal entourage, with the blast of the trumpet, proclaiming his presence, and with the blast of the trumpet, proclaiming the beginning of the eternal feast of Jubilee. When he comes again, it will be the climax of history. And when he comes, he will prove that he is the Messiah, the Lord of prophecy, and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he won't come with such great fanfare to show off, but he'll come to take his rightful place upon the throne and to bring glory and honor to his name. How all of that exactly is going to happen and how people around the globe will see him is beyond us. The Bible simply says that's what's going to happen and it will be glorious. But all the signs leading up, some of which we went over this morning through the various, uh, various verses of chapter 24, all those signs were not given us so that we can figure out when Jesus will come again in his glory. When we read Matthew 24, we must never read it in such a way that we can, you know, have a checklist and declare that, you know, the four signs are fulfilled, now just two more. No, the signs were given to us to let us know simply that Jesus is coming. The last days have lasted 2,000 years already, and they may last even longer. We don't know. The point is, though, he is coming. Behind the wars, behind the earthquakes, the famines, the violence around us, the coldness of hearts, we hear through Matthew 24 and through the scriptures and through the gospel of Advent, we hear the call of our God to repent, to know him, and to hear, as it were, the footsteps of Jesus drawing ever closer. And because he will return, says Matthew 24, verse 42, we are called to keep watch. Or as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, be alert and self-controlled. We must be vigilant. That's what the, many of the governments in Europe are asking people to be. They don't want to close down Brussels because of some possible disaster that might take place, but they're asking all the citizens to be vigilant. Be on your guard. Go about your life, but be on your guard and watch for something that might be unique and that might be different. Be alert and self-controlled. Live with the anticipation, knowing that the end will come, knowing that life as we know it now is not sustainable and will not be here as we have known it. It's the same message Peter sent to the scattered churches of Asia Minor concerning the work of the devil that was said to be prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
Now keeping watch or being self-controlled and being alert in the face of the devil and in light of the fact that Jesus might return at any moment doesn't mean that one simply sits back waiting for the devil to strike or that one sits back waiting for Jesus to come. It means, on the contrary, that we kind of sit at the edge of our seat in eager anticipation, wondering if this is the moment or if this is the moment. It means that we continue in our kingdom work, in our involvement in that kingdom. It means that we ought to continue to fight the good fight with an eye upon Jesus. It's like running the race with an eye on the finish line. Being alert and self-controlled, being watchful means that you don't step outside the lines, but you stay on the track going for that finish line. And being alert and self-controlled and watchful means that the believer lives with the assurance and the comfort of knowing that no matter what we have to face in the battle here on earth, nonetheless the end has been determined by the Lord. For in the end there's going to be that glorious return of Jesus Christ. As we today enter the Advent season, the traditional Advent season, actually the whole year long, we're in the Advent season. It's enough to be reminded that in an uncertain world, and in a world in which we do not know what will come in the future, we can nonetheless be absolutely certain of who will come, namely Jesus. And in this world of falling kingdoms and passing earthly powers, in this world of turmoil and evil, be above it all, or behind it all is that glorious throne of fire upon which sits the ancient of days who is fully in control of this chaotic world. And from that glorious throne room filled with authority, glory, and power, Jesus will come again with glory and majesty. You see, Christians do not think of world history as coming to an end in a in a fizzle, in a fade-out, in a small or a large puff of smoke. But Christians see world history ending on a glorious day, a day in which everyone will fall on their knees in the presence of the King of glory, a day in which every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a day that will be! Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.